All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And you probably know just from hearing that verse reference that this is the well-known Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, complete with a trip to Bethlehem and shepherds and a manger and all those familiar details that uh, really warm our hearts at the Christmas season. And yet, unfortunately, so many of those details that are so familiar to us actually cause us to mishear what the text actually says. So we want to make sure we look closely at this section of Scripture so that we hear it for what it actually says in its original context and not just automatically import all the familiar traditional details from our Christmas plays and the Christmas stories that we're so used to hearing and seeing over the course of our life. So let's make sure we have the context, and then we'll walk down through and look at the details of the story. The context is that we're sometime after the birth of John. Remember that Mary is six months behind Elizabeth. So when John was born, Mary was only about three months pregnant or so. So by the time we arrive at Luke chapter 2, it's probably been a handful of months since John's birth. Mary is late in her pregnancy now, and for whatever reason, this was seemed like the appropriate time for Joseph and her to take this trip to Bethlehem to register for a tax census, as was required of them by the Roman custom, at least the Roman custom in their neck of the woods. And this is the fourth snapshot in Act 1 of Luke's Gospel about the beginnings of the story. We had the promise of John's birth, the promise of Jesus' birth, the birth of John. Now we get the birth of Jesus. And so Luke chapter 2 opens with the familiar words, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. When we see the name Caesar Augustus, what we're really looking at are his titles. His imperial title is Caesar, and he has been deemed Augustus by the Roman Senate. That was a title bestowed upon him in uh, honor of his winning the civil war that ensued from the death of Julius Caesar. His given name, birth name, is actually Octavian. He is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, who was adopted by Caesar and designated as his heir over his throne, over his rule, his, in his kingdom. Um, well, when Caesar was assassinated, that precipitated a civil war within the Roman Empire, and eventually the forces of Octavian uh, won the day and put down the civil war, and Octavian then ascended to his throne as Caesar, and then was deemed Augustus, which means glorious one, majestic one. And so Caesar Augustus is the heir of Julius Caesar's throne, as Roman emperor. And that phrase, inhabited earth, is uh, a way of referring to the Roman Empire. And what Caesar is doing in this uh, census is he's counting the subjects within the realm as a means of consolidating his power so he can tax them. 
That's the way it worked. And it wasn't like he had one big emperor-wide decree. He had a policy of, okay, we got to figure out who we're ruling over in all these different regions. And so he employed local regional rulers to uh, execute this tax census. Now, verse 2 adds to the detail and in doing so actually raises some significant questions. Verse 2 says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this detail has caused a lot of questions because the only uh, at least complete record we currently have of Quirinius being governor of Syria is about eight to ten years too late. Quirinius was governor of Syria from 6 to 7 AD, and that's about eight to ten years after the time period we're dealing with here in Luke chapter 2. So historians have wondered exactly what Luke is getting at. Now, before we look at a couple of possible solutions, just a quick note on historical method. This is a historical method that is routinely applied by historians in any historical project. And that method is this. When a historical piece such as the Gospel of Luke is routinely demonstrated to be historically accurate and in, in fact, historically sensitive. When you take all of Luke's writings, Luke and Acts together, routinely things that we thought were inaccurate come to find out once we get more information, Luke was right, we were wrong. So in the case where a historian such as Luke, a historical piece such as Luke and Acts, is routinely demonstrated to be precisely accurate, then we should give that historical account the benefit of the doubt since we have such a limited knowledge of ancient history. And so as we approach this question and any other historical question we will find in Luke's writings, we really need to give him the benefit of the doubt and figure he knows more than us about his time period. He may have left some things out because he assumed his audience would know because his audience knew more than us. And so we just need to be cautious and proceed with caution. All right, with that little caveat of historical method, uh, here's a a few suggestions as to how to deal with this issue of Quirinius. One, just say, Luke got it wrong. Now, personally, I don't think that does justice to Luke as a writer because Luke repeatedly, even in really, really minor details, gets it right. Uh, in fact, Luke, even in the book of Acts, seems to be aware of the revolt and rebellion that ensued from the later census by Quirinius in AD 6 and 7. So, I don't think that really does justice to Luke's uh, accuracy as a historical writer. Another possibility is uh, that there was another time when Quirinius ruled or had some sort of authority over Syria um, earlier in time. In fact, there's some inscriptional evidence, inconclusive, but there is some in inscriptional evidence to suggest that Quirinius had some sort of official post, some sort of authority, maybe a military authority figure, we're not totally sure, but some sort of a, a post of authority from about 010 BC to about 7 BC uh, or thereabouts. And so perhaps uh, that's what Luke is getting at. And Luke is uh, referring to that time period when Quirinius thus conducted a census of Herod the Great's uh, rule over the realm on behalf of the Romans. Possible. Um, and again, not, not conclusive, but there is some inscriptional evidence that points in that direction. Or another approach has been to say that the word translated first in certain 
instances could actually be better understood as before. And thus, verse 2 would read, this was before the census that was taking place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In fact, the census that took place in AD 6 and 7, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, is a very well-known census. It led to a revolt and a rebellion. Um, and in fact, Josephus writes about that particular census, uh, the well-known census of Quirinius in 6-7 AD. Josephus, Jewish historian, if you're not familiar with him, look up Josephus. But Josephus writes about that um, as a watershed moment in the history of the Jews that, that really fanned into flame some of the spirit of rebellion that ultimately culminated in the besieging of the city of Jerusalem and ultimately the destruction of it by the Romans in the year 66 to 70 AD. So, and if Luke, knowing full well that that's a watershed moment, hearkens to that one and says, this wasn't that one, this was before that, that would make sense as well. All this is to say that we're not 100% certain as to exactly uh, what Luke means in verse 2. The evidence is a little inconclusive both ways. What we do know is Luke is writing about a census that took place uh, around 4, 5, or 6 BC. And it took place under the emperorship of uh, Caesar Augustus in order to count people for the sake of taxation. And so, Luke tells us in verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Um, in certain instances, following local customs, it seems, uh, citizens would travel to their original hometown where their family still had land. Anytime during the census year, the year proclaimed to be counted, they would have to make a trip there in order to register. And so this would infer that Joseph's family still had uh, ties to Bethlehem, that Joseph himself may still have had family land in Bethlehem in order to take this trip. That's a really important little detail to understand as we watch what unfolds in this uh, well-known Christmas story here. So Mary and Joseph decide that th if they need to take this trip sometime during this tax year, this is the best time to take it. And so they make the trip from Nazareth up north in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. This is what uh, verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about 80 miles or so. And note the connection with David, the royal line through which the Messiah was supposed to come. So Joseph is uh, of the family and line of David. They're traveling to Bethlehem, which is David's ancestral home. It's where he was originally from. And they're making the trip there to register. And Mary goes with them because they're engaged, which we've already talked about, that betrothal, the legal engagement process in that day and age, was uh, binding and required divorce to end it. And so they're going to travel together uh, in order to be counted uh, as a family um, there in Bethlehem. And two things to keep in mind as we 
uh, picture how this unfolds. One is we need to keep in mind the prophecy of Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written several centuries ago, way back in time, but this prophecy said this about the town of Bethlehem. But as for you, O Bethlehem Ephathra, you too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me a ruler in Israel. His time of comings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so Micah had this prophecy that Bethlehem was going to be the birthplace of the messianic ruler, one whose days are from eternity. So we got to keep that in mind. Perhaps Joseph is aware of that. They are experiencing all these angelic visits. They're getting all this intel about this little one. And maybe he's like, uh, I'm not really sure I want to take this trip while you're pregnant, but we got to do it during this year. This is the best time to do it. Who knows what all was going on in Joseph's mind, but this prophecy does lie in the background of all of that. A second thing to keep in mind is there's no donkey. There's no donkey. We always picture this story as Mary riding on a donkey. Now, I've never been pregnant, but I venture to guess, and from the women I've talked to, they've confirmed that in your third trimester, late term in your pregnancy, riding on a donkey for 80 or 90 miles uh, would not be a good idea. Uh, so I don't know how we ever came up with that idea, um, Mary riding on a donkey. But there isn't a donkey mentioned. That's an assumption that we've put into the story that isn't really there. And while we're talking about assumptions, let's talk about how we picture Mary and Joseph making this trip. In traditional Middle Eastern culture, the assumption would be that Joseph and Mary are traveling not alone, just Mary and Joseph making this trip, but they're traveling as part of a group, a group heading there for the census, a group traveling from Galilee to Judea for a variety of reasons, for business, for some uh, other reason to be in uh, Jerusalem, perhaps, but they're at least part of a small group making this trip. That's just the way these kind of trips were taken in their day and age. And so uh, the better assumption, even though it's not ex explicit in the text, the better assumption would be that Mary and Joseph are part of a small entourage who are making this trip down south for a variety of reasons. And so Mary and Joseph uh, make this trip together with people from Galilee, people they know, as they head 80 or 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay, all sorts of traditional details we have to dismiss, and we have to replace them with historical details. First, notice how verse 6 begins. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Not upon their arrival. Not, you know, they show up, it's dark, they arrive in Bethlehem, they're knocking on every, you know, indoor, and they're turned away at every indoor by a grumpy innkeeper. Nothing like that. It says, while they were there, inferring that they had been there for at least a little while when she goes into labor. That's the first thing. Um, the other thing to make, make sure we pay attention to is the word manger. The word manger just refers to a feeding trough, okay? So um, a feeding trough for a bassinet. And then the other thing we need to pay attention to is the word in. Really important. The traditional translation is frustrating to me and confusing to me. 
if you're reading the updated NIV, uh, they have they've actually decided to break with tradition and say, let's just go with actually what the text says. Um, the Greek word for in is kataluma. It's only used one other time in Luke's gospel. That's in Luke 22, verse 11. And there it's used for the upper room. Its basic meaning is guest room. Um, and so in Luke 22, it's the guest room or the upper room where the last supper is held. Here, it means guest room in a house. So it's not an inn. We're not talking a Motel 6. We're not talking a hotel of any kind. There's a whole other word for that. And though this word could refer informally to a, a place like that, it just means guest room, usually a room in a family home. Um, here, it probably refers to a relative or acquaintance, because remember, this is Joseph's hometown. Uh, Joseph only has to travel there because he or his family still own land in town. Um, not only that, Joseph is of the royal line. And in traditional Middle Eastern culture, like lineage is important. Joseph can show up, knock on pretty much any door in Bethlehem and say, I am Joseph, the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so. And everyone would say, oh, and they would throw their doors open wide to them. Furthermore, remember, Mary had gone to visit her relative Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and she lived just a few miles away in the hill country of Judea as well. And so if there was no place for them to stay in Bethlehem, they could have just traveled uh, a few more miles to Elizabeth's town because Mary was already welcomed there and she's well aware of what's going on with Mary. And so we don't, in other words, need to picture Mary and Joseph being, you know, having the door slammed in their face and then, you know, having to find some barn to stay in or some cave to stay in outside of town. In fact, in most of these traditional homes uh, of the period, the manger was inside the lower level of the house so that you had an entryway into the house and you had maybe a few little kind of uh, compartments right there in that lower level where you might bring the animals at night and there was a feeding trough there. You might have a little storage room under there as well for your farming instruments or whatever, then there would be a little staircase or ladder to an upper level, which was the family quarters where a family would have slept, where cooking would have been taken care of and all of that. And then you would have had the kataluma, the guest room attached to it elsewhere. So the guest room is a presumably full. The family's in the living quarters. Where is Mary and Joseph going to stay upon the birth of Jesus? And so apparently they were given access to the lower level where the animals are normally staying. The animals are probably kicked outside into the courtyard and uh, they place Jesus in the feeding trough on the hay there inside the family home. For more details on this, maybe even some cutaway graphics would help you picture it a little bit more. I would encourage you to check out Kenneth Bailey's work on Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. It'll give you plenty of detail so that you can see exactly what we're talking about here. The point is that Jesus was born amongst family and acquaintances inside a family home and placed in a feeding trough because the guest room at the house was already full. And that was the next best thing, the best next best place for him. 
it still emphasizes the lowly nature of his birth, the humble nature of his birth. He's born as a peasant among peasants in a small little peasant home and placed in a feeding trough as a crib. Now, Luke goes on and says, in the same region, so near Bethlehem, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And so you have the shepherds watching over their flocks, uh, keeping night watch, basically they're taking turns. And again, you have to make sure you think carefully how you picture them. Typically, shepherds were young people, ages 10 to 12 or so, um, often both boys and girls. So don't picture old, gray-haired, bearded guys. Picture 10 to 12-year-old kids, boys and girls, that tended to be fairly low on the social ladder. There might be an older person who was sort of like um, the chief shepherd, the one overseeing all of it close at hand, but then you have the majority of the shepherds as young people, uh, fairly low on the social spectrum. Uh, and unimportant. So they're staying out in the field, keeping watch over the night, taking their turns, doing the night watch on the sheep, when all of a sudden an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so in the middle of the night, boom, the sky lights up, and there is an angel, and there is a brightness, and these uh, young shepherd boys and girls are terrified, and the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. That's important as well. All the people, not just the high and mighty, not just the important, but all the people, including unimportant young shepherd boys and girls on a hillside in the middle of the night. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, notice the three titles, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So, Savior, Christ, Lord. These are the three titles given to this baby that is born. Savior is the deliverer, the one who had, everyone was waiting for to deliver them. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. And so, he is Messiah, and he is the Lord. He is the one who is in charge, right? So, this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So you're going to find a baby all swaddled up and lying in a manger. That's how uh, you will identify which baby we're talking about. So here we have the announcement of the birth of a king, because every royal birth needs a grand announcement. This particular announcement was chosen not to go to palaces, not to go to priests, but to shepherd uh, kids out in the field at night. Um, in fact, the word good news, I bring you good news, one of the ways that word was used in the ancient world was for the announcement of a royal birth. And so here that's what we get. The king has been born. The king has been born. This is a cause of great joy. Um, he is Messiah, King. He is Savior and Lord. And those two terms, as we already noted, those two titles subvert Caesar's claim to be that. In fact, that's one of the intentional things about the way Luke has structured this story. Here's Caesar, Caesar Augustus, high and mighty, uh, executing his authority by issuing a, a tax census. And yet here in the backwaters of Caesar's empire, uh, in a small little town, in a small peasant home, a king has been born. 
the true king, the real king, the real savior, and the real Lord. Um, and the announcement wasn't made in powerful places, but it was made to shepherds out on a hillside in the middle of the night. That's the point of what's going on here. And so the angel makes his grand announcement, and then all of a sudden, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, a huge amount of angels in the sky, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so glory to God in the highest, in the heavenly places, peace on earth among people with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them back into heaven, when the vision had ended, they had departed, um, the shepherds began saying, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made note to us. And so they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So they left the hillside. They hustled into Bethlehem. They found, you know, they just had to ask around you know, in these kind of towns, news would travel quick. Where was a baby born? Got pointed to the right house. They found the right house and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they reported the words that had been told them by the angel. So they shared some more inside scoop with Mary and Joseph about their child, that he's Savior and Lord and Messiah. Everybody who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. So all those other people noticed there's other people present, all who heard it, not just Mary and Joseph, but all the other people there heard these things. And they were wondered, they were amazed, they marveled. Wow, what in the world is going on? Who is this child? But Mary treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back to the hillside, went back to their task of watching sheep, glorifying and praising God for everything that they had seen and heard, because it was just as it had been told to them. Literally, Mary is treasuring and pondering, uh, continually trying to put the pieces together. That's the idea of pondering. She's trying to put the pieces together, figuring this out. Shepherds are praising God. Mary is trying to say, okay, let's put all, and she's playing the tape in her head and trying to figure it all out. And then a week later, so when little baby Jesus was a week old, when eight days had passed before circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is in keeping with what the Mosaic law required, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, that you, you circumcise the baby boys on the eighth day. And on that moment, he's given his official name. His name is Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Yeshua means God saves, Yahweh saves. And so that's his name. And so at a circumcision ceremony at a week old, um, he is given his official name. And so like King David himself, the one from whose line the Messiah would come, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, just as David was. David was a shepherd boy, and the announcement of King Jesus' birth went to shepherds. Um, it didn't go to the high and mighty. But those low on the social ladder, and in contrast to Caesar's power and greatness and majestic titles, here is the humble king born to peasants in a peasant home as a peasant himself. And so as Luke begins his gospel story, we learn right up front that this king is a different kind of king. 
This Savior is a different kind of Savior. He's one who identifies with the weak and the lowly and the unimportant. He himself came as a vulnerable uh, little peasant baby in a small town in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. This is truly good news for all people. Hey, it's John, and if you're a regular listener to the Listener's Commentary, then you know that this project is made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So to those of you who are ministry partners of the Listener's Commentary, thank you so much. You make this possible, and lives are literally being impacted and changed around the world through this teaching because of your generosity. And if you're not yet a ministry partner, could I just ask you to prayerfully consider it? I know not everybody can, but perhaps you can. So would you just ask the Lord if uh, giving a little bit each month to support the listener commentary is something he wants you to do? Your support not only would mean a lot to me, but it would make a difference in tons of lives all around the world.